Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Uddhang dhammang sankhang namasami Uh, we began this uh, retreat and I was bringing up these uh, reflections on death and on Buddha. These are the, we say, the Deva Dutas, heavenly messengers. Things we should reflect on many times. You know, so the Buddha said you reflect on death uh, at least three times a day. I think there's one in Nangutra, Nikaya talks about the one who really develops it, develops it, you know, with every in-breath and out-breath, they're developing that sense of this is this is the last breath, or this is, you know, that sense of finality and completeness with what one does, with no lingering, but yet fully there with it. You know, this is the last one. It gives you that sense of presence and immediacy. That's if you handle it skillfully you respond to the death or the dying or the or the mortal that which is mortal doesn't mean we actually you have to have to physically die but just recognizing you know whatever is seen heard thought touched taste smelt cognized is of the nature to pass and change which is pretting it up a little bit but it's the same essential message and uh, practice is written to, to be with it. And that you might say that's Buddha. Mm-hmm. Buddha is that which can be with the dying without getting into reactions. Mm-hmm. Reactions of um, you know, moving away from that, trying to find something else, or toughening up, stiffening up, trying to resist it. You know, panic, resistance, denial, finding somewhere else to go to, where it would be better, but actually to be with it. Um, and through that, there's a recognition of the deathless. <coughs> so, I mean, this is a, you know, seems to remember, even just as acts of faith, First of all, the, the deathless. There is this. It's kind of this is our act of faith, and it's the thing you kind of keep coming back to to, to encourage one to have the the courage. You know, which is one way of putting faith is that just the plain courage to be with that which is dying, changing, precarious, inconstant, um, and all the subtler. Um, and yet somehow equally, perhaps more penetrating psychological meanings of death the helpless, the uncontrollable the vulnerable the end of what I know the, uh, the end of my comfort the end of my um, 
my shell, you know, my my world, um, all that contains, all that you know, meaning, my safety, and the things I hold or feed upon, the ending of that, and these. Uh, you know, you kind of take this. There's lots of psychological meanings in that. We should begin to understand the more we begin to acknowledge how our system, a living sentient system, is really built to to try to resist death. Of course, you know. So, you know, it's designed to do that as much as possible. So you have a whole, we have a whole kind of psychology that backs that up. Yeah. You know, which is to make it safe, make it secure, make it pleasant, make it um, comfortable, make it free from danger. Um, you know, yeah, things around me that I feel confident and held by. You know, this is what the sentient system is, is about. Mm. Might say as a you know we even a little baby, tiny baby has two basic things. One is to hold on, you know, is how to clutch and cling, find out what's safe, you know, find the the parent, the mother, hang on, really wants to be with that, doesn't be separated from it, and wants to feed, you know, to take in nourishment. So these particular energies we get the sense of being nourished, warm, satisfied, replete, filled up, feels good. And something solid, protective, caring to hold, hold on to, feels good. This is just sentient. And uh, as we grow up, then those, the details of that model change, but actually the basic pattern doesn't change. <laughs> Doesn't mean we're infantile. It's, this is your basic sentient setup. Just we find different things to feed on. We find, yeah, you know, other sense contact to feed upon. Things that give us energy. You know, things that make us fill fill us up. Pleasant sounds, sights, ideas, projects, um, things of this nature. Obviously, sensual contact, and then even psychological boosts, success, praise. Um, Positive attention, we feel glow, we feel warm, we feel filled with that. So we feed, and feeding and clinging, upadana. And then we cling to or seek security in, you know, positions, status, uh, relationships, and so forth. And, uh, you know, this is the basic sentient system. And it, it all dies. <laughs> it, 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 you can't, you know, as we, we're deprived of that sooner or later, sooner or later is the kind of separation from that. Mm. And this is hard, hard to bear. So, generally as sentient beings, what we do is we, we, sh- we have a whole lot of you know, possible. So if one thing goes, you go to another thing. You know, if this person lets me down, I've invested a lot of 
you know, satisfaction or comfort in this person. I've got this other thing I can go to. Or, you know, so you, we build up a whole kind of, you know, ex- um, this accessories to give us the feeling of positive, something sustaining, fulfilling, something protective and sheltering. <clears throat> and to a certain extent, meditation is, is a very refined, um, you know, the whole system of Dhamma on one level and the worldly level just does this for us. It's not to be pejorative or to put it down, but just to really acknowledge a kind of fundamental um, need that sentient creatures have. And we're, in a way, we're fulfilling that need as far as it can be fulfilled to <coughs> take us away from perhaps the coarser or more manipulative or downright immoral or unethical ways in which we cling and feed into things that are actually much more pure, ethical, like we're sustained by precepts, we've got the firmness of that, we have um, firmness of a, say, community and relationships in this level, you know, we, um, we're nourished by uh, quiet, by uh, uh, silences and stillness, by um, gentleness, so things are non-abrasive and non-pressurized and things of this nature. So we, we get the, the milk and we get the, the, uh, something to, to rest in, to lean upon. Mm. This is the best kind of clinging. Because it's, it seems that this is really the main line of the Buddha's teaching is that you have to you have to go to this, you need to go through this particular place uh, of clinging, in order to to get enough uh, mindfulness and enough uh, stability, steadiness, stillness, and enough spaciousness to be able to wean. You know where in fact. As what happens in meditation, those very qualities, the intent or samadhi, the sense of strength or stillness or you know, internal um, com- concentration or composure, the sense of mindfulness, which is that moment-by-moment specific awareness of things arising and passing, spaciousness, which is our ability to, to let go, non-attachment, dispassion, um, trust, I'm calling these things basic trust, basic clarity, basic strength. Yeah. And you, you, you develop these in this kind of safe realm where one's getting this kind of sense of support, comfort, till they become strong enough to stand back on their own and say, well, yeah, okay, now, now, I'm, now I've grown up. Now, now I'm okay, I can do it without this, thank you, I've, I can leave it now. doesn't mean you hate it or reject it, but now one is no longer dependent of it. And that's, that's the very significant shift into the um, noble path, I'd say. Where this, to summarise, where the very quality of awareness, you know, sort of can be recognized as not dependent upon 
a particular object. And this is uh, this kind of weaning process is is quite a subtle thing. And the essential qualities of, of uh, a sustained, a full awareness, a mindful awareness, to be able to, to detect, or you know, the 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 mind or awareness itself. So as we begin to, you know, steady and simplify and, and focus and get concentrated, then you recognizing the shifts of things, the subtle changes, the flushings and flowings and fluctuations of, of mind, of awareness, of mental objects, of perceptions and feeling, so on, and you begin to recognize there's, there's the knowing of that. And this is, this is the, um, something you can kind of feel, and you feel this, the strength of that. And it's a strength that's not uh, aggressive, domineering, macho, pushy, rigid or brittle. It's soft and yet it's not mushy. It's got a kind of, it's open and yet it's not vulnerable. This is blending. Strength which is not standing on anything. Firmness which is no, no ground to stand on. As long as that's not there, then uh, the, we get caught in the whole um, conundrum of contact, sense contact, or emotional contact, psychological contact, which is that you know we want to open up and receive that which is steady, comforting, please, pleasant, affirmative. And so we want to be open to that. But when you're open to that, you also get the rough and the abrasive and the abusive. So, oh. So you want to close down to that, you close that off, but then you don't get the nourishment. <laughs> so, you know, one part of one system is actually wanting to, you know, open and receive. One part of one system is trying to protect and shut down, and you get this kind of oscillation, because nothing is actually, you know, uh, guaranteed one way or another. Uh, you know, on, when you look on the a, on a, on a level of the kind of psychological or the emotional or the mental level. Physically you can get it pretty okay. Yeah. But still there's going to be the sense of the um, you know, in ordinary life uh, other people's energies feels a bit sharp or abusive or you feel you're being made fun of or or um, not respected or yeah. So you get that kind of jolting rough feeling or challenged or disagreed with not very nice. Yeah. So you know, so you, so you toughen up to resist that. And be strong. You know? 
you toughen up, but then you don't get the kind of you get this kind of shell feeling. You don't get the sense of uh, of uh, being able to receive anything nourishing. So you get kind of protective and defensive, but you, but you get the shell. But you don't actually get the the shell blocks off the the good stuff. So then you kind of okay, drop the shell, just open right up, then wham, <laughs> get a poke in the eye. <laughs> so there you go this kind of thing. So then one can go back to the excellent. Level. Okay, well let's get rid of all the you know the people who are going to do this to me. Just get the nice good guys around me or whatever. <laughs> but it doesn't quite work because uh, you know none, none of us are entirely good. <laughs> you know, on, on one level we do the best we can. Yet uh, yeah, even when one is, actually is being as what one feels is good, you still it's liable. The case is liable that one actually. Un- unknowingly kind of intimidates or offends or you know somebody else so so there's got to be another place to go which is not uh, exactly like going to another place literally like you know where in the world do you find it so much as just a particular um being able to, to recognize and meet contact, the changing nature of it, the pleasant, the unpleasant, without um, feeding on it or leaning on it, but without rejecting it and um, repudiating it. This is what the development of the mind is about. And to really, we have this opportunity to make full, full use of that. Because, uh, as you can see, even on the physical level, in a couple of you, in ch- two or three, you're in chairs already. You know? <laughs> Do the best you can with a physical body, and it really does to you. <laughs> it's not as if you sit around driving nails into your flesh, just doing innocent things, you know, harmless, innocent life, and yet does this, doesn't it? And, uh, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to do it to all of us. And we all get our, you know, backache, my back goes out every now and then. And, uh, you know, you get a sense of stuck, helpless, you know. When your legs go, your back goes, you just got to flop, lie down. Or, you know, you can't get into the real sort of warrior mudras anymore. <laughs> That's just on the on the physical level, and, uh, and uh, psychologically, we can enter into some pretty um, sort of a damaged or um, territory now in, in our hearts and minds that is not that that strong. It's not that it's quite, you know you've got bruises and things where you suddenly feel very very adrift, very confused, very lost. Um, the tendency then is to, you know, we try to tighten up around that, but you reckon, no, that's not going to do it either, is it? I'm not saying we have to, we deliberately wish to find these places, any more than you deliberately wish to have, you know, physical ailments, or just, but to recognize that chances are that they, they happen. 
not because there's something innately wrong with you, but because this is what it's like, you know, to be born sentient and and in a human realm, which is uh, not uh, awakened. You know, there's all sorts of um, abuses and damages and fears get injected, and worries and insecurities, and. Uh, and Essentially, none of we haven't grown up really out of the pattern of clinging until someone has some sense of of um, full realization. So it really helps to, in, in practice, just to get very specific about the feeling of, of well-being, where it is. So I think in one of the meditations recently, I've just been saying, well, when you're sitting still, just notice the well-being of sitting still. You know, that one, one feels balanced, one feels calm, just by that. You know, there could be unpleasant things you feel in that, but just try to feel the well-being of that. Try to feel the well-being that's in silence. You could feel lonely or lost or awkward, but just feel the sense of, hey, you know, nothing, nothing's going to, you you're, you're kind of, you're not going to be intruded upon. It's safe. It's like that. You know, we could, we could feel all kinds of things. We try to feel the, go towards the well-being aspect of it. Um, and then just the working into the body and feeling what's the body like when it feels relaxed, when we relax our faces, we relax our eyes, we relax our arms, we relax our fingers. Yeah, and feel and get quite specific. This is the function of mindfulness. One function of it is to get very not to say, yeah, I feel fine, but how do you know you feel fine? Where do, where does it feel? You know. Does it feel like that in your chest? Does it feel like in your belly, in your fingers, hands? And so you just move around the body, saying, how's that now? Is, is that okay there? Feel where the good bits are, you know? And then try to pick up that, and through that quality of, of open attention, the quality of, of uh, mindfulness and agility and calm that you, that you get from the easy bits, spread that to the difficult bits, you breathe into the, the, the toughness or the leatheriness or the numbness. So one of the fundamental practices of anapanasati is to use the breath energy as a conduit, as a, something, a vehicle that can do that. You don't have to use the breath energy, but that's, a, that's, a, that's one way of doing it. Um, which is effective because it, the breath energy does carry these, these uh, messages of, of release, letting go when you breathe out, and of brightening and picking up and um, uplift when you breathe in. And because the breathing is something you don't have to consciously do, it's also, it seems to affect the whole system a level beneath volition beneath one's um, you know 
manipulations or one's constructions. It just happens. You know? So you're not just thinking it or trying to make yourself do it. You just see so there's a sense in which you can kind of open the whole body to that effect and feel that happening. So it seems to also in that way um, touch into um, places in our system that we uh, normally maybe sealed off or protected ourselves from bits of tension and even psychological areas of, of resistance or uh, agitation or fear. Mm. Subtle, subtle maybe, you don't always recognize it. Feeling when you really breathe out and let go, you know, that's that sense of allowing things to cease. There can be a kind of a, a nervousness, we might say, rather than fear. Just a, don't, you know, one doesn't, something in one doesn't want to do that or wants to get to the next bit. There's a kind of slight loss of attention there. Or to even breathe in fully, where you, one feels perhaps a little bit nervous or agitated about just being that big, you know, taking in that much. Mm. And being that extended, because that's what the in-breath does, it makes you large. So we, yeah. And of course, as, as one um, downplays the external contact, then the internal contact becomes uh, more dominant. That is, we, we come into contact with some of the uh, residues of the mind. And as you um, develop in meditation, then you know one of the uh, bits of news, which isn't what we're so interested in, is that the many of the unresolved uh, elements of uh, psychology start to manifest. You get edgy, irritable, or um, yeah. So you, you're kind of you know, witnessing that, but you've got some strength. You've got not the strength, but you've got some firmness, you've got some confidence, you've got a good place to come from with that. Otherwise, if we don't have that that inner uh, sense of confidence or comfort or ease, then, you know, we either don't open up this stuff or we don't know what to do with it. So if we don't have that, this stuff, you know, your fears and worries or guilt or resentment you know, bubbles up, but you haven't got any way of dealing with it. So it, you, one tends to then kind of obsess in it. And probably this is something we're all aware of, you know, the overwhelm in the, in the mental stuff. Mm. Not to be recommended, but it does, it does happen. If you find the place of, of simple well-being and you emphasize that and go to that, then it's not to say everything's going to be fine, but for that place of well-being, you've got a way in which you can handle, uh, contain, and gradually um, clean, heal, mollify, ventilate, let go, purify the mind, the content. I would say that's the main theme of the, of the practice, purifying the mind. 
its way. And during retreat, uh, you know, we, we, in a way, we have a, a very good opportunity for that. Actually, the old idea of not really having to, um, you know, make a lot of contact with each other. We, first of all, we don't necessarily get into the um, refrain from accidentally, you know, intruding or offending each other. Sounds a bit negative, doesn't it? Um, but that, that's what can happen, as we all recognize in, in Sangha life. Nobody wishes it, but it does happen. You know, say the wrong thing or wrong energy at the wrong time. Mm. And also there's no sort of pressure to achieve or, or be on top or, you know, so on. But to really use it like that as a, as a skillful means rather than as actually an abiding place. Because it, it, it ends, it changes. And it, even during the retreat it changes, I'm sure. It doesn't always necessarily feel as, as quiet as we'd like it to be or as, as um, non, non-active as we'd like it to be. I'm all, I personally am always getting stuff happening from external sources. But then, you know, essentially one is learning to to develop that, the mind, so that it doesn't have to get affected in the same way. You know the intent. It's like changing from being a, a crustacean to being a, a vertebrate. <laughs> you know, a crustacean has a shell on the outside because it's so soft underneath. So you have to have a shell around. Yeah. And then if you're a, a vertebrate, then you, your, your strength is internal and you're soft on the outside. So the softness can receive things. But you've got an internal core that keeps you intact and holds you steady. And this you know, is a kind of model of practice we are like the Buddha image itself is very soft and gentle on the outside. It looks, you know, soft and peaceful and sweet and joyful and so forth. And yet the, the core of the Buddha is, is a very firm, strong, unmoving quality. It's an image of, of a development, not to develop a shell. Or the shells that we do develop, just as seen as, well, that's the way it has to be right now. Uh, we, develop, we, we use that as necessary to, to develop something more unshakable, more useful. And I encourage you. So 
So it's, uh, you know, we can see on the physical level, there's that willingness to do that, isn't there? You know, most of you are quite happy to, to um, you know, be in simpler accommodation, uh, eat less, you know, sit up longer, with the, more the physical difficulties of, of, the, of the life. And I think most of us like the idea of, at least the idea, and the practice of going off on Tudong, where you, you know, just have to be out there, you know, in the whatever it is, the rain or the cold or the hunger. And uh, you know, there's a tremendous sense of freedom in recognizing, yeah, it's like that, but it doesn't really matter. We've somehow shifted a, some way from just pure dependence on, on, the, on sense contact. And in the Sangha life, you're also trying to develop one's dependence upon more psychological, emotional um, supports. Because it isn't entirely fair in one way. You know, stuff happens. Put on the spot. Remember, it's a in my own practice. At first, after about I'd only been ordained six weeks, and I'd go off and give talks, give talk. One only one talk, but you know, I had to travel from where I was in the centre of Thailand up to northern Thailand. I didn't speak Thai, so I had to kind of get on a bus and somehow find my way up there, which you know is okay, but it's, you feel a little bit nervous because you don't know what's going on give a talk, sit there in front of a group of people and try to say something about meditation. I've only been doing it for about um, six months myself, <laughs> meditation. <laughs> so you can feel very nervous just being put there yeah, and having to do that. You know, so this, this is not physically challenging, but psychologically it's quite challenging. You know, to be the centre of attention and try to come up with something that's going to, you feel is going to be worthwhile or useful for people. Just being the centre of attention is challenging. Exposed. After my fifth bus, I giving a 10-day retreat, only five rains, 10-day retreat. Keep going for 10 days, trying to teach and lead something for 30 people. And then um, set up a monastery in Northumberland. So, you know, nobody there to rely on, no teacher, no support. Um, make it work, you know. Just not just the, but it was a kind of run-down old shepherd's cottage. You've got to rebuild the thing and also somehow come up with the, the Dhamma and the Vinaya to um, sustain the spiritual aspects. Only, you know, a bit challenging. <laughs> then uh, eight vases, then I started to, asked to, to uh, 
um, teach and train the, the nuns, you know. Didn't know how to do that. Nobody knew how to do it, that's why they left it to me. <laughs> I got this kind of reputation, you see, as a bit of an icebreaker, you know, just kind of so rugged on the outside, it didn't really matter, because that's what happens, you see. When you get put into these challenging positions where you don't actually have enough core, it's an incredible shell. So I had an enormous uh, amount of armoring. Just, uh, you know, so, so, you know, responsibility and and things like that. Where people would actually don't like what you're saying or don't want to hear what you're doing or you've got to say no and people don't like you saying no. So what do you do? You know, essentially you just develop armor. That's the way it's going to be. <laughs> you know, one way or another. So, uh, you know, it gets like that. And you get a certain amount of ridicule for being in that way. So it all, it all mounts up, doesn't it? You both have to deal with the thing and then also get some sense of being disliked or even ridiculed because of it. So, so that just builds build a bit more armour. Uh, and then the Chitthurst, so Amra Hanum, Chitthurst, Amrawadi, setting up three monasteries and uh, tremendous amounts of responsibility and being in positions and so forth. Where all the time you're meeting conflict, you're meeting um, human energies as well as physical stuff, but people's. Um, resistances or whatever, you know, then you, you, you certainly, this is, this is uh, challenging. And in a way, I wouldn't really recommend that, you know. <laughs> it's a deep end approach, they call it. You do learn some things, but the problem is you can, you, instead of necessarily really firming up in the core, you, you firm up by becoming harder. That is a certain psychological um, you know, stubbornness or resilience. But it's not dispassionate, it's, it's more like a kind of defense. Because that's what, you know, we develop the shell. Protecting. And then these things come come round. So, you know, certainly last few years I've been getting a bit soppy, more soppy and silly and soft, you know, which is not, all my stuff I've generally done in public, so it's not a bit embarrassing really. But <laughs> there you are. <laughs> so you lose your reputation as being the kind of, uh, uh, you know, super rugged and gain the reputation of being the other way, you know, so actually, because it's like, you, you know, one has to visit areas that you haven't actually really um, been aware of, and sooner or later it catches up, the sense of the, the, uh, the softer aspects of being, the sense of the helplessness or, or grief or needing support, wanting encouragement, those kinds of qualities in us, which we have to you know, 
you don't acknowledge, you don't have to follow them, but the problem is that one either follows them or represses them unless they're actually witnessed with mindfulness. Yeah. So most of the minds just kind of, you know, shelved. But at the same time, one doesn't want to, you know, say that the either hard or soft is itself the way, you know. These are just areas that we have as sentient beings. And uh, ideally, you develop a practice you can contemplate and know these things. And then, however, uh, you know, Strange it may be for one's self-image. There's a death of that self-image. And in the awareness of the death of that self-image, there's a, a realization or awakening to something bigger than all that. But you, don't, you can't get beyond it unless you've actually been with it and known what it is and also been able to let it die. Been able to let it die. Had the capacity to let it die. It's not just a matter of willingness, it's willingness is one thing, so there's the capacity. Hmm. And in, in a way, uh, uh, my sense is that the holy life is a kind of preparation for that because we get intuitions of that. We get the sense of it, you know, the uh, change of things, the separation from the things that we love or the things we rather feel comfortable with. It's there for a while and it changes and shifts and goes. And it's just continue like inoculations of this particular experience. And you begin to get touches of the sense of I wish it could be another way or why couldn't it be really comfortable or you know and the helplessness and okay there's that sense there's that feeling you breathe in and you breathe out you breathe in and you breathe out and you that those kind of ripples and waves and feelings can be felt and yet they also can unfold and evaporate Last year, as I was saying, I was, I was in Tibet last year and then we did the, the pilgrimage around Mount Kailash, which is uh, very much a sort of death-oriented. Not just death, but death and deathless-oriented. A lot of Tibetan Buddhism is based on just pre- preparing oneself for death so that at that moment we don't have to go into the next cycle of birth and death and we can move out. So it's not gloomy, but it is, it's, it's stark. You know. And, uh, you know, these two, two particular um, strong um, 
experiences, one around the mountain itself, where as you go around the mountain, you go on a kind of mandala, of the circuit around this mountain, in which you start off imagining your birth, and then you move in to the birth experience and through that, with a feeling of being welcomed in, you know, let go of the regrets and the guilt or the feeling you've got to prove something, just feel really welcomed and you just walk in that and you gradually move around in a day or two to the place where you, you die, the place of death, where you actually, the idea is you take leave of your life and you let go of it all. And it's not too difficult to, to do because the, a whole um, physical experience is so edgy, you're so much on your edge, it's like you, it's precipitous, like you're standing on the edge of a cliff all the time, in that your body energy is, is, is your body's not getting enough oxygen essentially. So it has this physiological effect whereby all the time your body feels this kind of, you know, edge, tightrope feeling to it, just like you're walking a tightrope. You have that, it's strange because you're not walking a tightrope, you're just standing in the middle of a valley, it's not even a particularly difficult walk. But yet, that's the body is feeling that. So you get this very edgy feeling, precipitous feeling, and that brings up a kind of emotional vulnerability. So you're in this kind of state. And then, all, then also around this, the mountain, there are these places where you bring, you're encouraged to bring up these kind of perceptions, images of one's parents and gratitude to, to teachers and parents and sharing merit with the, 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 the living and the dead. So it's, it's this huge... Um, place where the, the development of, of the spirit, if you like, is, is encouraged. It's also a very bleak area, so you continue to get these reminders in the sensory realm, nothing here is going to support you, you know. <laughs> there's no food, there's no shelter, it's just it's, you're out there. So all these come together to, to, to give you something like a kind of um, a near-death experience, you know. You know? whereby the only thing that you can really do is develop the spirit of sharing, of loving, of trusting, of devotion, of, of Buddha, and so on. So it's a very powerful and moving experience to go through, particularly if you have the cultivation to back it up. It's not just the physical thing. And there's this place called the Shivatal, where you... you um, dedicate merit to immediate family like the parents, grandparents or people who really you know, help build your body and form and then you begin to take leave of your own body imagining it uh, passing so you take leave of your friends and people you've known um, not obviously not rejection but real like leave taking like, I have to go now it's time to go, to pass I think this is enormously helpful to do because, you know, apart from preparing for our own death, there's also, even what's even more difficult in some ways, is to prepare for the death of others. You know, what are we going to do about that? How the, uh, the helplessness and the grief and, and uh, you know, affects us. So this is a very useful place just to bring up that particular... Um, perception you know I haven't got any parents, they've, they've died already but at least all the people I know now 
you know, feel connected to and, and uh, you know, part of my life, just the same. Right. And in that particular state of what the, the, um, the mountain, the, the, air, the terrain does, physically and emotionally, psychologically, it becomes very palpable. You know. um, because for a start, you know, you, you really have to, um, to, you really value breathing, you know, because it's like your body is continually struggling to, to breathe, to get enough air in, to get enough oxygen going. So there's also a sense of being on the edge of a kind of blackout. You know. So it's not difficult to imagine dying. And then sitting still and meditating, then one begins to, say, focus on the very sense of what the body feels, the energy of the body, the sense of having a body. You know, the tingling, the warmth, this, and particularly, you know, the body, just as it comes down to this, this, this thread, which is the life flow. You know, there it is breathing in, there it is breathing out. That's your home base. That's, that's the very core of it, isn't it? And uh, when the breath is that restricted, how important and how highlighted that, that, that thread of breathing life becomes. And you focus on that particular sign, you know, the, that vitality, and then, okay, now that's just that, that's not me. That's how you take leave of it. You don't have to stop breathing, but you see that particular energy, that particular sign in the mind. Yeah. That particular sign in awareness of suffusion and vitality and steadiness and repeatedness. That's not me. Yeah. That's not mine. That's not myself. That's that's a something else. Yeah. And now to take leave of that. Which isn't, you know, about stopping breathing. It's just really recognizing and letting oneself, one's awareness, be separate from that. And then what happens? You know, where is there else? You may do this yourself in 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 meditation. If that, all that, is just that, if that very life force itself is just that conditioned by life yeah, and not yours where else is there? what else is there? Uh, and uh, you know you, you, that's, the, that's the death moment and if you, you know, if you've cultivated particularly if you've cultivated this in line with the, the Buddha Nusati, recollection on Buddha. This is where you get your, your kind of like the nimitta or the sign of Buddha, or whatever it is, however that manifests as something that takes you, is there for you when everything else ceases. It's not a it's difficult to say what it is, but it's an intuition, you might say. Uh, but a tremendously uh, encouraging intuition. You can't, it hasn't got a particular form. It's just the sense of, oh, that's all right then. You know, that's all I can say. It's just like that. Well, that's all right then. It's had to happen. That's all right. 
and then I'm I'm all right. You know, whatever happens, I'm all right because there's only one is not that. Yeah. So I found this tremendous sense of uh, quiet elation with no particular object. Didn't feel great, didn't feel good, but felt elated with it. That, that all that that one so instinctively holds and is concerned with and wants to protect and yeah and yeah it's all right if that goes you'd be all right All right is too weak a word. It's uh, the sense of the uh, serenity of that is uh, truly magnificent. The other thing I was very striking was the sky burial I went to. I think I mentioned this before when I came back, which is the they take the bodies, dead body, recently deceased person out to a hillside and then um, slice slice the flesh open and let the vultures eat the body, eat the form. So that's very powerful too. Um, not grisly, not disgusting, just just stark. Just you know, like this is it. The wraps are off. <laughs> you know, it's not kind of voyeuristic. You know, uh, it's not supposed to be depressing. It's just this is it, isn't it? You know, it's like having your your eyes held into that. This is what actually happens. You know. You know, this physical stuff gets eaten up, right? And once, but when one sees it happening in about uh, you know fifteen minutes or so, from being a physical form to just being a mass of of struggling birds, chomping and thrashing their wings around, and you know, then then they finished, and you look, and there's not, it's just a few bones, and. Uh, yeah, very stark. Particularly just to see a human form that's being laid out on the ground and the, the other human beings just kind of, you know, not, not uh, harshly, but just matter-of-factly sticking a hook in it, pull it round and start slicing it open like slicing up beef, which of course is probably really distressing if you're a cow. Um, we take it for granted till you see it happen to a human form I don't know what it'd be like if it was your mother, seeing your mum or dad getting sliced open. But there it is, you know. And you can see some, something in the body just really, you know, cringes at this perception. And it's so helpless, it's so, so naked, you know. 
not just physically naked, but you know, it's the sort of thing you you automatically want to kind of shield and protect, and it should you know put something around or over it, and it's just laid out there, and then these uh, eighty or so birds jump on it and just you know start pulling bits in one way or another, and then it's uh, chomping away, and then fifteen minutes gone. You know, wow. And how peaceful it is, essentially. You know, in a strange way. Once you, you go through the shock of it, and that wave of the shock, uh, which can have an element of grief or shock, or just sheer, you know, wanting it to happen, and you just stay through that, and it empties both the physical form disappears, and then these emotional residues also disappear. They come up, but they're there by holding yourself, holding your attention there, they they kind of evaporate. And the mind is left very open and serene. It's not the mind is not macabre or grim or pessimistic or philosophical, it's just opened. You know? And you wow. You feel the silence and the and the space and the firmness of presence. Mm. One doesn't want this to happen. You know, sentient being does not want this to happen. There's no reason why a sentient being should want this to happen. A sentient being that does want it to happen must be sick, you know, because with sentient beings, we're about not having that happen. Yeah. But then, with uh, mindfulness and and samadhi and detachment, you know, you, you're finding the place where you're not just a sentient being. You're also a, a Buddha, or a scion of the Buddha. You, there is that for us, and it's just making that that kind of journey from the death through death, actually to the deathless. But in meditation we're doing this in a very prescribed and gradual way. Mm-hmm. And the uh, beauty of it is you can slow the process down. You, know, you, can, you can actually fine-tune the process with mindfulness so you're just aware this is the sensation passing, the energy changing and get very specific with it. So it's not a, a generalization or a philosophical concept of impermanence or change, but actually, a, how do you know it? Because yeah. if we don't um, handle it from that place of really knowing specifically change, then we take refuge in a philosophy rather than an actual practice. And the philosophy acts as a kind of a psychological buffer. You know, it's not the real thing. Oh, well, everything changes. You know. So you think we've got it just because we've got that idea or that attitude. That's not it. Uh, that's protection. Change is actually precarious. 
It's a precarious experience. And when you're dealing with the, the five aggregates that are clung to as oneself, it's precarious. So I say that one doesn't actually do that unless we have the, the sense of the safety to do that. We may substitute it for you know, philosophical detachment or armoring of some kind or another. But the real thing occurs in the place of um, composure, samadhi, ease, when you have access to, to your primary health, to your basic strength, your basic clarity, and your basic trust. So when you practice, make it very, you know, make practice very specific. You know, first of all, that which is good, how do you know it's good? Can you know it good both as an emotional state, you know, a sense of happiness or ease, know it as good as a physical state, feeling the relaxation or the openness of the body, know it as good as a mental state, that is uh, one's sense of clarity, one is, one is unblurred, non-reactive, you know? One is discerning. Mm-hmm. So just a simple thing like the physical, just the uprightness of the body, does it feel good? You know, which bit feel good and which bits you know, don't feel good? Does your shoulders, arms, head, general posture, um, vitality, is that okay? Yeah. And even knowing the bits that don't feel good, oh, it's like that. So we're very specific with that. Uh, and that those sensations and energies you use them to develop the quality of mindfulness, concentration or calm and you feel them moving, changing, dynamic even when the, the unskillful dhammas arise then why is it unskillful? What's the unskillfulness? Feel, sense it, the uh, emotional state, reactive, um, um, loss of loss of center. In you know, physically feeling flushed or tense or tight. Yeah, well, that's what it is. It's that because unless you really know it fully. You know, then the, the faculties of, of mindfulness is not strong enough. It's through the full knowing of these things that mindfulness and full awareness become strong and complete. Then, in a way, once one fully knows the unwholesome is the unwholesome, that knowing is where you, you, your center shifts to the knowing and the unwholesome falls away. And similarly with the unwholesome, the wholesome as well. So it's that movement from the sensed, the cognized, the, the formed, into awareness, the unformed. This is our practice.
Amen. 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 Amen.